Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I have two parts for you on today's podcast. In part one, we will review the second leg of Napoli's Champions League quarterfinal tie against Milan. And in part two, we'll preview our big match on Sunday against the now third-placed team, Juventus. And I'm joined by a guest to help me out with that. He's someone who very graciously writes for ForzaNapoliPress.com, despite being a Juventino, but he's one of my favorite Juventini and Please don't hold that against them. Yerevan Wanroy, welcome back. Hi, Joe. Glad to be here again. It's been a while, but I'm happy to preview Juventus with you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you on. We have a lot to talk about today. There's so much to talk about from the uh, Champions League match, and then there's a lot going on with Juventus as well. So let's start with the 1-1 draw between Napoli and Milan at the Maradona on Tuesday. (laughs) Olivier Giroud scored Milan's goal because he's Olivier Giroud and he always seems to score in the big moments for Milan, even though he didn't score in the first leg and he could have scored three goals in this match, but only got the one. Victor Osiman scored the late equalizer for Napoli, but it was a little bit too little too late for Napoli. Uh, Milan won the tie 2-1 and advanced to the semifinals where they will play in a Derby della Madonnina against Inter. Meanwhile, Napoli's Champions League run has come to an end. You know, there's so much to talk about from this match. From the perspective of a Napoli fan, and we were talking about this offline a little bit as well, I had a similar feeling at the end of this match as I had at the end of the 2020-21 campaign when Napoli tied Hellas Verona on the final match day of the season. And as a result, we missed out on the Champions League qualification by one point. In fact, we allowed your Juventus to get into the top four with that result. And the reason why I feel that they're similar is because the tie was so close that you can identify a host of reasons why Napoli failed. And even if just one of those things didn't happen, then the outcome might have been different. In that 2020-21 campaign, you know, we had a ton of injuries. We didn't have a great record against direct rivals. We lost to clubs we probably shouldn't have lost to, Spezia, Hellas Verona, Genoa. And then, of course, there was the whole Gattuso De Laurentiis drama at the end of the season with that draw to Hellas Verona. And you think if any just one of those things went our way, you know, if we didn't have the injuries or if we just played a little bit better against our direct rivals or if we didn't drop points against clubs we shouldn't have dropped points to or if there wasn't that drama with ADL and Gattuso, then we probably would have finished in the top four. And likewise, I think there were so many things in this tie against Milan that didn't go our way. And if just one of those things did go our way, 
then maybe we would have advanced to the semifinal. So that's how we'll structure this review of the Milan match. And I want to start with Milan's defense. You know, Napoli started really quickly in both of these legs. But once again, they just could not break through that Milan defensive block. And we can criticize Milan's approach to the tie in terms of sitting back and playing, I guess, classic Italian football, defending and countering. But I think, first and foremost, we have to give Milan credit for how well they defended in this match. Yeah, and some of these comebacks by the Milan players are just literally insane. Like Calabria, for example, he has been awful for the past couple of... I'm I'm even going to say months. He didn't look like himself for a while. And then he plays Frascalia like three or four times in the space of a couple of weeks. And he did pretty well, although uh, we will probably touch on this soon. Ukvara got a couple of chances, but still, he did he did pretty damn well against Fadaskelia. And also, before the match, I said, ooh, Pioli's taking a bit of a risk with playing Kier against Oziman. Last week, I could understand, because Oziman was not there, you're going to play Kier, who has the, the experience. But this week, you really took a couple of risks in defense, and they just massively paid off. Uh, we already knew that Magnan is just a magical goalkeeper, a, a difference maker. But yeah, you got to give the Milan defense massive props for, for the way they defended. And some of these players, they just peaked at the right moment in the right match this season. So yeah, massive shout out to them. I actually had Kalulu in my starting 11 for that very reason. I thought Kyer made sense in the first leg because we were playing Elmas at striker, even if it was going to be Simeone, Raspadori. None of those guys have the pace of OC men. So you can afford to put Kyer in there and you want his experience. Whereas in the second leg, I figured, okay, Kalulu's back. He's quicker. That partnership of Kalulu and Tomori played so well at the end of last season in Milan's run to win the Scudetto. So I was a bit surprised that Kyer played, but yeah, he still played very well. Napoli had 16 corner kicks in the second leg alone. And we did almost nothing with them. And it's not like we played our usual short corner and passed the ball all the way back to Alex Merez. <laughs> we were actually finally crossing the ball into the area time and time again. But that back four, not just Kyer and Tamori, but even Teo and Calabria, they were just eating up everything in the area. Even you know the players that got back, like Giroud was heading a couple of balls out as well. And... If I'm not mistaken, Milan blocked nine out of our 23 shots, you know, and then they had countless clearances as well because they were defending so much. So I think Stefano Pioli deserves a ton of credit for that as well. And also, you know, he had a clear plan on how he wanted to stop Osimen and Cavada. We had Kyer and Tomori were basically shadowing Osimen everywhere he went. They were on him like glue, so he didn't have much space. I didn't think our, our delivery and our service to Osimen was particularly good in the match, but still, whenever the ball came to him, he couldn't do much. He held the ball up and he laid it off, but he was not going to get behind them the way they were playing him. And then with Cavada, they double teamed him as well. And I thought, you know, with Osimen coming back into the lineup, Cavada might have a little bit more space. But what Milan very cleverly did was they always had one of their midfielders drop to double up on Cavada with Calabria, whether it was Benacer or Tonali or Krunic even, you know, even though he's more of an attacking midfielder in the 4-2-3-1, he was dropping. So anytime Cavada had the ball, he had to get by two guys. And more often than not, he's just going to pass it off to someone who's not as dangerous. And that's what Milan wanted. They wanted guys like in the first leg, we saw Lobotka taking shots in the second leg, you know, and Dombala had a shot. I mean, Zielinski, we want him shooting, but 
we'll talk about Napoli's finishing in a bit. I agree. I thought Calabria defended Cavada well. I don't necessarily think he pocketed Cavada like some Milanisti were suggesting. I think Cavada still got by him a couple times and had a couple of chances. But yeah, he he did good enough and definitely played way better than than he has earlier in the season. I mean, it got to the point where when Pioli switched his formation, Calabria was the guy that was left out because he just wasn't playing good enough earlier in the season. The other thing that Pioli did well was he leveraged Milan's strength, which is their ability to counterattack. Yoda, Milan had three chances in this match, and two of them came from the break. The penalty kick that was ultimately missed, and then, of course, the goal. Yeah, it's very smart how, how Pioli set up his team. He, he switched back to the 4-2-3-1, which has massively benefited Rafael Leao, who, with his speed, he can take on any defense, especially when you're kind of creating the space you need to counterattack yourself. That's basically what they did. They kind of they managed to get Napoli out of their zone and create massive space for Leao to go in behind. And they got quick and tidy players on the counter. Brahim can very quickly get the ball to the other side of the pitch. Like you said, Chirou is always at the right position to finish it off. So I honestly really think Pioli, Pioli outclassed Paletti with the way he set his team up even though it could have ended very differently if Napoli took their chances early on. Pioli did exactly where the strength of his team lies. And that is something you, of course, you want. And especially in the Champions League, when you're not doing very well in the league, you have to think of a different plan. And I don't really think Spalletti really had a different plan. Normally, when it doesn't work at Napoli, the, the plan is just we smash it to Ozyman and we hope that we can grab the second ball and then do something with that. But with this Milan team, you really saw that if it doesn't work possession-based, we're going to switch to the counter-attack, and they got exactly the right players for that. And I think also, uh, which you mentioned just before, I think it's crazy how some guys are performing in the Champions League. Because Rade Krunic, I have not seen him play a lot of great matches, but these last couple of weeks, he was everywhere on the field as well. Like Tonali, you expect him to be, you know, we all know the potential of Tonali. But Krunic as well, he was everywhere, covering Farah, but also on the other side. So it was really crazy how how Spalletti could just not manage, especially as the game went on, it got more difficult to manage, it seemed. So it was really, really impressive and interesting to see how that turned out. Pioli definitely had Spalletti's number over the last few weeks. I mean, three matches, a combined scoreline of 6-1 to one for, for Milan over those three games. So... I think you have to tip your hat to Pioli, and I completely agree. I think one of the criticisms of Spalletti over these couple of matches was that he did not really seem to have a backup plan. I mean, even if we switch to a 4-2-3-1 and put Raspadori in, I don't know if that's really that different. You know, he tried doing that. I mean, we did get the goal from Raspadori crossing to Osimen, but it did feel like he just didn't do enough. He didn't give Milan a, enough of a, a different look. At the same time, I almost hesitate to criticize him for it just because we were so dominant before we conceded that it's not like we were struggling to create chances and you know we'll come to the missed opportunities as well because that's another one of those reasons. Going back to this idea that there were so many things that didn't go our way, I think another one that we can probably add to the list is the 4-0 defeat to Milan in the league, of course. That was the match where the Ultras staged a silent protest because they weren't happy about ticket prices and the bans on flags and drums and megaphones and things like that. 
prior to that match, I mean, we talk about Liao excelling in the 4-2-3-1. When Milan were not playing in the 4-2-3-1, Liao was really struggling to find the back of the goal. He went 13 matches in all competitions without a single goal. He had only one assist during that period. And his body language was really poor. It looked like he was kind of lost interest or just wasn't enjoying himself because of the struggles. He scored two goals in that 4-0 win against Napoli. And then since then, he's been playing at the same level that earned him the Serie A MVP award last season. He was involved in pretty much every big Milan play in this tie. He got the assist on the Benacer goal in the first leg. He won the penalty kick in the second leg. And then he made that ridiculous run to assist on the goal in the second leg. Shout out to Alex Meret for the two saves on Giroud. I mean, first on the penalty kick. And then a few minutes later, Giroud had made a really nice turn in the area and, and Medet kicked that shot away as well. By the way, for the Milanisti who were saying that Napoli players encroached on the penalty kick, the IFAB confirmed that it was actually the correct decision to not retake the penalty kick. The explanation that they gave was that according to the laws of football, other than on offsides, a player's position is determined by where his feet are on the ground. So the couple of players that looked like they had encroached their front foot was actually off the ground which means their position is based on their back foot and all of their back feet were outside of the area so apparently i mean i don't know maybe it's debatable but according to ifab that was the right decision on Liao, going back to that run that he made on the goal you're a surely one of the napoli players and there were many who tried to stop him should have committed a tactical foul at some point in that play yeah, certainly, but <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> and Dombelo, of course, he just had a, had a, he didn't have a good match altogether. And I think he has been pretty impressive, not 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 necessarily impressive, but he just he's been pretty solid as a substitute. But now he he had to start, of course, because someone Guisa was uh, suspended for the game, which we all knew before it was going to start was going to have a big impact because. Zombo Anguissa has been one of the best Napoli players this season and he's just vital to that midfield. Like Ozyman is to Kvara, I think uh, Anguissa is to, to Blobotka. And you really saw on that run with Leao that he just does not have the pace. Like you see that he's trying to go quicker, but he just really cannot. But there were other players with more experience on that run, like Di Lorenzo and Rahmani, who should have done something. Like surely. So I think Rahmani tried, but it seemed like he was a bit far away as well from Leao when he put in the tackle. You would say that with their experience, they should have done something. And Rahmani, has, I think he has been pretty good this season. I've been pretty impressed by him. But he hasn't looked this bad as in that match for a while. I think he was really unconfident. Maybe it was because Kim was missing in the, in, in the heart of defense. But... It was not a good effort. Like, if this happens in, in Sunday League, you scream to your teammates as well. Like, come on, man. Just take him down. Like, <laughs> last man, you you, you got to do something. I actually thought Ndombele was pretty good up until that point, And that, that kind of just soured the whole match for him. Just, he took his eye off the ball. Fine, that can happen. But in the middle of the park and with Leao lurking, it was a really, really costly mistake. And then, yeah, I completely agree. I think even on Di Lorenzo, in that situation, you have to get something. If you're not touching the ball, you have to get the player. Ironically, he did that with like no time left in the first half and got himself booked then. I mean, make the tactical foul on that play instead. I completely agree on Angisa and Kim. I mean, 
there are two players who might have committed a tactical foul or might have stopped Leao on that run. I mean, Kim has that pace at the back. And Gisa, I don't know if he necessarily has the pace of Leao, but you know his positioning and his strength, he, he might have been able to get a tactical foul in there. Not to put this all on Juan Jesus either, because as we said, so many players were at fault on the goal, but I feel like Kim would have done a better job of defending the pass there. Now, Giroud is a very clever, experienced player, and that's another sign of a very good striker who just can slow his run to create that separation between himself and the defender, and then he has the composure to put that ball into the back of the goal, even after he got stopped on a penalty kick, and then he had that other chance that I mentioned that Medet stopped. So you can blame so many different players on that goal, and I guess it's just one of those things where you know it's frustrating as a fan to see, to see Napoli basically dominating the first 20 minutes and then giving up a penalty kick. And then it was funny because the first half of the first leg was almost a perfect mirror image of the first half of the second leg, right? Where Napoli come out flying, dominating the play, pressing high, winning the ball back. And then out of nowhere, Milan get this attack with so much space in the midfield. In the first leg, we had that layout chance where he just missed the far post. In the second leg, we had the penalty kick was stopped. And then in both games, in the final five minutes of the half, we concede a, a pretty devastating goal. You know, of course, Angisa and Kim did not play this match because they were suspended after getting cautioned in the first leg. The poor officiating was another one of those things that maybe had the officiating gone more in our favor than the outcome might have been different. Apparently, Istvan Kovac was suspended for the remainder of the tournament after his pretty dreadful performance in the first leg, and not just against Napoli. I mean, there were also calls that probably weren't great calls against Milan as well, or maybe they could have gotten a penalty kick here and there. So I'm not suggesting that he was only suspended because Napoli didn't get the calls. It was probably just an all-around poor performance. Simon Marciniak, who did the World Cup final in December did a much better job in officiating in the second leg. However, his VAR team perhaps were not so great. After the VAR reportedly stopped working midway through the first leg, they seemed to miss what I thought was a pretty clear foul in the area. Yoda, should Napoli have been awarded a penalty kick for Leao's tackle on Lozano? I think VAR might have gone uh, to get some espresso because like, if that's not a penalty, then I don't know what is. Because... You saw the, the ref made the sign like ball, ball, but you could clearly see in the replay that it was all Lozano's foot first and then it was the ball. So it was basically Leao went through Lozano's leg to get the ball. So I don't know how that was not a penalty. I think even on first glance, it looked like a like a shaky moment. So I don't know why, why far. It wasn't even a, a long check. Like nowadays you see for clear penalties, you see like a, a check of five minutes. And now we played on very quickly. So I think that was a 100% a penalty, yeah. I agree. From the replays I saw, it was clear to me that Leao caught Lozano's foot prior to touching the ball. You could see Lozano's ankle turn inward from the contact. And actually, I think he posted a picture of his ankle on Instagram or, or social media somewhere, and it looked pretty swollen from that turn inward. So at the very least, the VAR should have called Marciniak to have a look for himself. Instead, to your point, they played on pretty quickly with the uh, Napoli corner kick. The conspiracy theorists out there might even suggest that this was all the doing of Zvonimir Boban. Boban played for Milan for about a decade. He worked alongside Paolo Maldini for nine months as a director before he was sacked. 
while Dini was very nearly sacked at the same time, he is now chief of football at UEFA, which means that he oversees the whole VAR. And of course, like I said, VAR stopped working in the first leg and didn't make this call in the second leg. Personally, I am not a conspiracy theorist, so I'm not going to use that as the excuse, but I'll let everyone uh, form their own opinions on that. Now, Lozano was only on the pitch because earlier in the half, both Matteo Politano and Mario Rui were forced to leave the match due to injury. Lozano and Oliveira are just as good as Politano and Mario Rui, albeit different types of players. So I don't know if I would include that on the list of things that might have changed the outcome for this tie. I would definitely include the three injuries to all of our strikers in the first leg because other than Raspadori's cameo in the first leg, they were all basically injured for that first match. Mind you, Politano was having an excellent match to that point. He was finding a lot of joy on that right wing, taking on Teo. He seemed to have Teo's number. He had a couple of decent shot attempts as well that missed the target. Now, who knows if, going back to the penalty kick, if we would have converted that because we have just been dreadful from the spot anyways this season. So I don't even know if that, that would have worked. But you could argue that the penalty kick we rewarded in the second half was maybe a bit of a makeup call for the penalty that wasn't given in the first half. And and the reason I say that is because friend of the pod, Rui Pereira suggested online that Tamori's arm on that play was in a natural position. He's sliding and his arm is on the ground. I'm not really sure. I, I think at the same time, I'm, I'm torn on this one because at the same time, if the ball does not touch Tamori's arm, I think it was Raspadori in front of the goal who's basically waiting for a tap-in. So I, I think that one, I think it would have been harsh to not give the penalty. Nevertheless, as you mentioned earlier, Mike Magnon showed just how magical he is of a goalkeeper. In my opinion, he's confirmed now that he is the best goalkeeper in the world. He stopped Cavada's attempt. Yura, is Magnon Milan's most important player right now? I think without a question. Because even in the first leg, he made some amazing saves. I think it was right at the end on Di Lorenzo. That was a, a magnificent save. Yep. I think it gives the Milan backline so much confidence as well. Because Tomori is not having a great season. Calabria is not having a great season. And if you, not to trash Tatarozano, but if you have Tatarozano behind you, like that man is scared of the ball himself if he has it on his feet. Like he does not know what to do with it. So I think it gives a lot of confidence to the back line that they have a goalkeeper who can, he owns the box. He owns the box. Like every cross, even though he doesn't seem like such a, like a Courtois type, but he gets on every cross. He's good with his feet. He knows the decision making. If you see the videos of Milan coming onto the field, you know, you, you hear him screaming in the, in, the, in the walk on the pitch. He really embodies the Milan spirit very well. And he made some pretty good saves and he's very secure as well. Of course, that penalty save that finishes it off because if you can do it in such clutch moments, you know, you, do, you don't know what could have happened if that penalty went in. And it would have been a very shaky last few minutes because then it gets into your head as well as a player, you know, it's 10 minutes to go and oh, they are coming, they're coming. But if you know that you have such a goalkeeper behind you, then I think that gives so much security mentally as well. Milan are looking pretty smart now for letting Donnarumma go for free. With <laughs> Imagine if they had found a deal there, you know, Mike Magnan doesn't come in. Between the save on Di Lorenzo in the first leg and then the save on the penalty kick, 
he took away two short goals, right? So that's, again, in another universe, maybe that that's Napoli going through. We had 23 shot attempts in this match, and only four of them hit the target. I mentioned that Milan blocked nine shots, which means we had 10 shot attempts that missed the target completely. Yoda, we touched on it, or we alluded to it a couple of times already, but Napoli's finishing in this tie just simply wasn't good enough. I think a lot of the time, maybe also like the wrong players got into the position to shoot. Like you you mentioned earlier, Oziman didn't really get the service that he normally gets or that he could have used in a match against Milan. I think Politano getting subbed off was, was a pretty big moment because um, we talked about this as well on WhatsApp, I think it was. And I told you, like, I could not understand why Lozano came on because Lozano is exactly the type of player that Teo Hernandez likes to face because Lozano does everything on pace. And I think Teo might be the quickest player in Serie A on sprint speed. He's up there for sure. And there was not a lot of space. And Lozano is pretty useless if there's not a lot of space. And I think Politano was probably in that in those first 20 minutes, he was probably the most dangerous player cutting inside and, and trying to fight the near post. Uh, Magnon was close every time, but he came pretty close. But I think it was a case of the wrong players getting into the position to shoot. But also, I don't know if it was the pressure or something else, but Kvara, he was not sharp in front of goal. He, The angles were tight, but I think still he could have done better with some of these opportunities. He looked very rushed in his finishing, and they were pretty far off target as well. So I think it was a case of maybe Kvara lacking some confidence and the wrong players getting into the position to fire on goal. Yeah, I agree. I mean, a part of me also wonders if even the shots that missed the target had something to do with Magnan. It, w- it was almost as if our players knew that they need to have the perfect shot to beat Magnan. So they were putting a little bit of extra power behind the ball, causing it to launch over the bar. They were trying to perfectly pick their corners, causing them to miss the goal altogether. In some cases, they were doing both, like on that Cavada chance earlier in the first half. You know, you felt like if he had just settled down a little bit and he tried to blast it into the top corner at the far post and just completely missed the target. Going back to Milan's defending, you know, they forced us to shoot from outside of the area as well. And then we did get some chances in the area, but we didn't take them. Matthias Oliveira had two clear headers in the second half and he just missed the target completely. And then, of course, those Cavada chances that you mentioned that he missed, there was two where, again, going back to the point about Calabria, on both occasions, Cavada split between two Milan players, Cavada and then another player to create the chance. So he did get by Calabria a couple times, but the finishing just wasn't there. And, you know, a lot of people, particularly Milanisti, have been talking about the Milan DNA and this sort of natural predisposition for Milan to win this match because of their history in this competition. Personally, I don't buy that. Again, we've listed all these reasons why Napoli didn't advance and and Milan did. I mean, if Milan had this great DNA, then, you know, where was the DNA last season in the Champions League when they finished bottom of their group? You know, the DNA went on vacation last year, apparently. But I think think you can make an argument that regardless of Milan's DNA, Perhaps it was Napoli's lack of Champions League DNA that caught up to us in this match. And that's really just another way of saying that we came into this match with a lot of players who had very little Champions League experience. And to your point, maybe that bit of pressure got to them a little bit. I guarantee you that 
if we were so fortunate to be back in a quarterfinal next season and those same chances fall to Cavada, he's probably going to score a bunch of goals because now he's had this experience. He's had this pressure. He's had this time to reflect and learn and improve himself. And, you know, that's just something that sometimes comes with experience. And now Cavada was visibly upset after the match. Obviously he knew what could have been. He's a very competitive person as are most of these players at this level. We saw Victor Osiman's leadership again at the end of the match. He literally picked Cavada up when he was down. The reality is we probably wouldn't be in the Champions League quarterfinal without Cavada, so I'm not going to be too harsh on him for missing these chances. Yes, it's still very disappointing. I mean, when you look at the draw and, and how things set up this year, who knows if we'll get another chance to play to reach a final of the Champions League anytime soon. If we're lucky and we're able to keep all of our star players and still get a relatively fortunate draw, I mean, that seems to be a lot to ask for. But at the end of the day, I'm still proud of our boys. Even with everything seemingly against us, we still took it to Milan over 180 minutes. And in the end, the tie came down to a couple of episodes, as they say in Italy. We may not have that Champions League DNA, but we definitely stay true to our identity. Okay, that will do for part one. In part two, we will preview our match on Sunday against Juventus. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Forza Napoli pod. It's entirely voluntary. There are no set tiers, but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at fortsanapolipress.com. And thank you, Gina, for becoming a patron not too long ago. Okay, Yura, let's talk a little bit about your favorite club. Thursday was a pretty big day for Juventus. First, we learned that Juve's 15-point deduction had been reversed, which was, I guess, kind of expected after we saw the reports on Wednesday about what had been said in the trial. We were just waiting for that official confirmation. Then Juve tied Sporting 1-1 in Portugal, which was enough to advance to the semifinals of the Europa League. Juve won the tie 2-1 on aggregate. Let's talk about the point deduction first, and then we'll talk about the Sporting match. I haven't had a chance to read up on all the details of the decision just yet. Can you shed some light on why the points deduction was reversed and what is going to happen next? Yeah, so basically what the, the court has said is, to put it very simple... The 15 points, they're not in line with the explanation given by the prosecutor. So basically what the court has now said to the prosecutor, you have to come back with better evidence to build on why you gave 15 points and then we will make a new decision. So it is very likely that uh, the prosecutor will come back with a different points deduction, which they can better put together with what Juventus did. So basically the 15 points were not in line with whatever proof the prosecutor gave to the court about Juventus. It seems like now they made the decision too quickly. They wanted to punish Juventus as quickly as possible and it's come back to bite them now. But like you mentioned, it's far from over. It's probably going to take a while and, and I just personally, I just hope that it's over before the season ends because, you know, in Italy, these things can take a pretty damn while. Mentally, this is, of course, is massive for Juventus because I think it might even be bigger than advancing against Sporting because... Allegri, he always, he kept on saying, we are third, we have this many points, we have this many points, to the point where the players actually started to, like, it seemed like the players were starting to believe that that was the actual amount of points that Juventus had. And it was 
it was amazing to see. And now they've got them back. That must be such a big boost mentally. I cannot imagine. I can imagine the players now going back to Turin in the, in the plane, joking about this and feeling more and more motivated to get that second place because it's up for grabs now. We're very close to Lazio. And I think altogether, it, yesterday was it was a massive day. But to be fair, I think in about 15 days, the court has to receive the new evidence by the prosecutor. So it could also very well, again, uh, be a different scenario. But for now, Juventus are, are kind of in wonderland, yeah. You're right. I think Allegri has been, in his mind, Juve never lost any points to begin with. And I questioned initially whether that was just him being a coach, right? Trying to keep his player focused and and prepared and, and playing in these matches as if they were in that position. But who knows? Maybe he genuinely believed that Juve were going to get the points reversed. Do you think that, you know, one of the questions is whether the point deduction, if there is another one, because there's rumors that while the 15 points was reversed, you know, they're going to retry the case. And the thoughts are that you are still going to get a points penalty, but it might be something like five or six points instead of 15. If that happens, which we don't know what will happen, do you think that those point deductions will be still applied to this season or will it be applied to next season? I've seen some reports that it would actually apply to 23-24 because this process could take a while. I don't know if even if that decision is made, if there's another opportunity for Juve to appeal that decision. So if this drags on for a while, do you think the points can be handed out next season? Well, that's basically the problem. We're pretty much in the dark because the court has, I think the court has set a date for in 30 days, we have to make a decision, a final decision. But a decision is never final because you can you can go on with this for so long. So I think if in 30 days there's a decision and Juventus are happy with this, I can imagine that if it's like three to six point deduction, Juventus will react very differently. Also looking at the table, because I can imagine if like with three or six points, if they're still in the Champions League spot, I can imagine that the, the management will say, we'll take it, fine, we'll take it. If it stops now, we'll take it. And personally, I think the club would rather have them next season probably because now they can qualify for Champions League and they can invest a little bit more. And then next season, they know how many points they have to get back. I think that the main point is that now they're still in the dark, but if you can push it to next season, then you wouldn't be in the dark anymore. So I think for Juventus, it will probably be quite beneficial to push it towards next season. So I can imagine that if in 30 days we get another decision, Juventus is not going to accept it. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think even from a Napoli perspective, we would also probably be be happy for Juve to take the point deduction next season because right now we still have a healthy <laughs> healthy gap over over Juve this season. So that point deduction is not going to help us anymore. If anything, you know, maybe teams like Inter and Milan really want those point deductions to happen this season because they're all battling now for that final Champions League position. I, I think given Juve's standing in the table along with Lazio, they're pretty sure, unless they get that deduction, of course, you know, they're in a pretty strong position to finish top four. So for Napoli, we'd rather, you know, Juve get a little bit of a, a points penalty and everyone else gets a head start, I guess you could say, <laughs> on next season. The other reason why Thursday was such a great day for Juventini was because Juve were one of the two Italian clubs to advance to the semifinals of the Europa League. So Italy now has five semifinalists across the three European club competitions. Roma won a very dramatic match against Feyenoord, which you had the pleasure of 
staying up until the early hours of the morning to write about. We saw Fiorentina come back and uh, salvage uh, a win in their tie, even though they lost the second leg. So five Italian teams, of course, Milan and Inter in the semifinals of the Champions League. Yoda, what were your thoughts on Juve's performance in that second leg against Sporting? Yeah, so uh, like you mentioned, I uh, had to report on a different match, but I, I watched back a large portion and I, I talked with some of my uh, my other Juventini mates about uh, about this match. And what is very interesting to note as well for Napoli fans, I think, is that Juventus started in a, in a 4-3-3 formation. While the biggest portion of this season Juventus has played in a 3-5-2 or 3-4-1-1, whether you say that Di Maria is like a second striker or more of a, a cam. But Juventus, they tried out a different formation. But of course, like I think uh, we talked about this in the other episode as well. Juventus do not have the fullbacks to play four at the back. Alexandro is basically such a big liability. It's insane. I think yesterday we saw a little bit of it as well. I think Marcus Edwards gave him a pretty tough time uh, in Lissabon. It's difficult to say whether uh, Juventus are going to start in a, this formation as well on Sunday. But it might be an experiment by Allegri to see if he can kind of replicate what Pioli did against Napoli. Because he clearly saw that it worked. So he's probably, he probably wants to try something like this. But it's very tough to say. But basically, yeah, uh, Juventus, they took the lead because of Adriano Rabiot, one of the best players this season, soon to be out of contract, of course. And then Rabiot also gave away the penalty with Marcus Edwards equalizing from the spot. But Juventus, of course, had the 1-0 lead from Gatti in uh, Turin. And it was basically what we've seen this season from Juventus. They take the lead, they crawl back into their shell, and they just pray that the opponent does not score again. Allegri said in the, in the press conference beforehand, we're not here to defend the lead, we're here to make more goals, which was obviously a lie. And they just they prayed that Sporting would not score. And uh, centre-back Coates, he missed some massive chances at the end. So Juventus were pretty lucky that this did not go to extra time. Yeah, Cuartas looked like a center back <laughs> trying to finish those chances. Just big feet and very uh, clumsy finishing. And I think on the second one, he was probably trying to square that ball across the face of the goal rather than finish. But yeah, I guess Juve were a little bit fortunate that those chances fell to the wrong player in the second leg. You mentioned very interestingly that perhaps Allegri might be setting up or trying out testing a system similar to what Pioli employed against Napoli. Do you think Juve have the counter-attacking players to score against Napoli that way, or is the idea just let's try not to lose? Well, I think if you kind of like compare them to the Milan team, Milan, of course, has Leao. Chiesa is also pretty quick, even after his ACL injury. And he is a player that could do with some extra space as well. I think Di Maria could kind of go into the role of uh, Brahim Diaz with the quick transition from one side to the other. And if Vlaovic starts, which is a big question mark after his recent performances, he's not the slowest as well. So I think up front, yeah, they could probably do it. In midfield, it's probably a different story. First, of course, you have to question who is going to do like the Ben Acer role to kind of take Lobotka out of the game. I think it was not a coincidence that Miretti played yesterday because against Paris Saint-Germain, Miretti had a similar role as well to kind of like ruin PSG's build-up. But I probably think Fajoli is going to take that role if, if anyone's going to do it because Fajoli against PSG as well, he kind of took Messi. He tried to take Messi out of the game like with early interceptions and stuff like that. 
But I think at the back, Juventus just, they cannot handle all of that. I think they need three centre-backs because Alexander is just, can you imagine Alexander against Turkey? Because I criticised Turkey when he was brought on against Theo Hernandez, but against Alexandro is basically the opposite because that man is not very quick anymore. So I would be very hesitant because Cuadrado, of course, is also not a real defender. He would have to take on Kvara. I don't know. I, I can see why he tried it, but yesterday it already was not a big... They drew. It was 1-1 and they held on for dear life at the end. So I think Allegri tested it. But I don't think he's going to choose to do it again on Sunday, especially after how it turned out yesterday. Yeah, and you can still counterattack even if you play three at the back, right? Like, especially if you're playing... Kostic is another player who has pace, so you, you know, play him as the left wing back, play Quadrado probably as the right wing back, and now you get both the numerical advantage to help defend... Chuki and Cavada, you know, those wing backs drop and, and play alongside the center backs. And then you also get the opportunity to counterattack with both of their pace. So, yeah, maybe it'll be some sort of hybrid version or try to do what Pioli did, but with a more traditional Juventus system. Talk to us a little bit about Juventus's form because both of these teams have only won one match in their last five in all competitions. For Juve, it was the 1 0 victory over Sporting in the first leg. And of course, they didn't need to win the second leg, so a draw is actually a good result there. But, you know, they tied Inted in the first leg of the Coppa Italia semifinal. They lost to Lazio and Sassuolo in Serie A. And then, as I mentioned, the draw on Thursday. I mean, Juve's league form has been better than perhaps their cup form, I guess you could say. I mean, prior to the losses to Lazio and Sassuolo, Juve won seven out of eight matches. The only match they didn't win was a loss to Roma. So how are you feeling about Juve's recent form? Well, to be honest, not very good because even against Sporting, the match we won, if it wasn't for Mattia Perin and Wojciech Chesney, then Sporting would have won. Especially at the end, Perin, he, he held out two certain goals in the double save. And I think Juventus are just, whenever they have to make the play themselves, I feel like I'm saying this 10,000 times this season, but whenever Juventus have to make the play themselves, they just struggle massively. Because they do just not really have the confidence and the players to, to be the, in possession all the time. And they're just very leaky at the back as well. We knew this because Allegri, he had to get creative because, of course, Alexandro, he plays a lot. And he's just trying to like put Alexandro in a position where he just doesn't cause a lot of problems. And that's obviously in the back three. But I just think a lot of the players also are just not in a very good form. I think the last time Dusan Vlaovic scored, I wrote it down here, it was in March against Freiburg, and that was a penalty as well. It was like the 16th of March. So he's been, he's been awful. I criticized Di Maria early on in the season because I thought he basically only focused on the World Cup and used Juventus as like a training camp. But after the World Cup, he's been pretty good. But now again, he's kind of struggling again to find the right form. Chiesa, is, he's getting back to his pace, but it's still... Not everything's clicking, basically. And whenever you know you have these liabilities at the back, you also have to, to, to take everything you can up front. And this Juventus team is just not really able to do that. And I think against Sassuolo, it showed again, like Vlaovic, he just is not involved in the play at all. And imagine him against Kim, if he can't even take on Ferrari at Sassuolo, you know, then you know it's going to be a difficult day for him. 
and every player is like isolated a lot of the time especially in attack so i think yeah in the league juventus's form might seem fine but it's all about the way you're winning as well because we talked about milan's champions league dna we can talk about allegri's dna as well allegri's dna is of course winning with minimal figures but it's not really something you can keep on doing and it shows because now it kind of feels like the, the motor is kind of slowing down, you know, it's, it's like we're losing a gear sometimes because you cannot do it for 38 match days. I think that's basically what's happening now. Juventus are running a little bit out of luck. That's what you saw against Sassuolo, I think. And yesterday in Europe, we had a little bit of that luck back. But it's also, this, this is something I discussed with my, my Juventini friends as well. Every time you've had to score, it's like a corner or it's like an, an individual thing. Like, I can't remember the last time we scored a real team goal. And I think that says it all. It's all a bit, we just try and we hope the ball falls in, into the right goal. Speaking of uh, motors slowing down or ships running out of steam as another analogy, I mean, Napoli are also probably in their worst form of the season. Similarly, only one win in our last five matches in all competitions, which was the 2-1 victory over Lecce. And even that match, we were really poor. So we might be foreshadowing our predictions a little bit here with <laughs> how down uh, our teams have been playing. We'll get to that in a second. But let's talk about the starting lineups first. We know Moise Kane is probably going to miss this match. He's still recovering from a muscle injury. Alexandro and Matthias Decilio both returned from muscle fatigue, so they'll be probably in the lineup. They were both in the lineup against Sporting. Bremer left that match a little bit earlier, so I don't know if he's a little bit in doubt for the Napoli match. Yoda, we touched on the formation a little bit with the three at the back, but what are you expecting in terms of personnel for the starting 11 for Allegri here? Well, like you said, Bremer, we're a little bit in the dark still because I think the squad just got him back to Turin probably or are on the way back to Turin and he's going to go past J Medical now. But it seemed to be uh, something uh, like a muscle injury. So it's very difficult to make an educated guess here. But I think it's going to be Chesney in goal and then back to you probably of Alexandro Danilo. And it's going to be either Bremer or Gatti. And even maybe if Bremer is fit, it could also be Gatti instead of Alexandro. But for now, I would go with Alexandro, Gatti, and Danilo. I think in midfield, we're going to go back to the classic Quadrado, Rabiolo, Catelli, Fagioli, and Kostic. Also, to probably try to hurt Napoli on the break with pace on both sides. And Fagioli and Rabiot can just run a lot. Locatelli can intercept a lot. This is a midfield that could probably work hard to try and cause Napoli some issues in the build-up as well. Uh, basically, like I said, I think Fagioli might try and pinch the Napoli build-up a couple of times, like trying to shadow Lobotka a little bit, like Ben Anster did. Then I think Di Maria is going to play because, like I said earlier, Juventus are very dependent on individual class, and he just has that. If he's in the right form or not, he's just a player that he can create something out of nothing. And then I put Milik because I know Allegri likes Milik and Vlaovic is just in awful form. Yesterday he should have scored probably, but he had it. I don't know where he even headed it towards, but <laughs> that was not a good try at all. I think it's the wrong decision to start Milik because he's too slow to kind of get involved on the counter. But I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to start Milik instead of Vlaovic. Also maybe to try and, and wake Vlaovic up from this poor form but yeah that's what I've gone with so a 352 slash 
the three four one one. It's how you want to see it. Yeah, Milik makes sense as well because you're playing on short rest, less rest than Napoli had, two days less rest. And also there's that bad blood, there's that animosity between Milik and Napoli. So I can definitely see him starting. For Napoli, we lost three players in the return leg against Milan. In addition to Politano and Mario Rui, we also lost Amir Rachmani. Mario Rui injured the fibula in his right leg. The reports are that he could be out for the rest of the season. The recovery times are typically three to five weeks. But, I mean, Napoli have been very careful in terms of bringing players back from injury. So five weeks is probably more likely. And by then, Napoli might have already won the Scudetto. So if that's the case, I think they'll just shut him down for the rest of the season and make sure he recovers properly. Matteo Politano and Amir Rachmani both suffered ankle sprains. It sounds like Politano's injury is a little bit more serious. He's expected to be out for two to three weeks. Rachmani might miss a week or two. And then Cholito Simeone is still doing personalized training as he recovers from a muscular injury. So I don't expect him to return for at least another week as well. The good news is, of course, we have Victor back. He played the full 90 minutes against Milan. And Raspadori should be pretty close to full fitness as well. So I don't think we're going to miss Simeone too much for this match. Also, as we mentioned, Ngisa and Kim will be well rested because they were suspended for the Milan match. The silver lining, I guess you can say, with the Politano and Mario Rui injuries is that we have good depth at those positions. I mean, not that we love Lozano or, you know, Oliveira has been pretty good, but they're both starting quality players. So they'll slot into the starting 11 pretty seamlessly. Really, the only question mark we have in our starting 11 is who plays next to Kim Min-jae at center back. Juan Jesus has clearly been Spalletti's number three this season, but he just played the full 90 minutes twice in four days. So does that mean that Spalletti takes a look at Ostegaard here? I mean, I think there's still a good chance that Juan Jesus starts just because it's been five days between the match on Tuesday and this match on Sunday. But I'm going to go out a bit on a limb and say that Ostegaard finally gets a start in a big game here. I, I mean, I'm not terribly confident in that prediction, but I wouldn't be terribly shocked either. So just to summarize, I have Spalletti lining up in a 4-3-3 with Alex Meret in goal, Leo Ostegaard and Kim Minje at center back, Matthias Oliveira and Giovanni Di Lorenzo at left and right back respectively, Stanislav Lobotka as the regista with Piotr Zielinski to his left and Andrei Frank Zambuangisa to his right. Kavicha Karaschelia on the left wing, Chuki Lozano on the right wing, and Victor Osimen at striker. Okay, Yara, just before we wrap it up, what do you see as a final result for this match? <laughs> I hope I'm going to be closer than uh, than last time because I think back then I said minimal goals 1-1 and it was 5-1 <laughs> for Napoli. <laughs> but I think now all of a sudden Juventus have quite a lot to lose in this match. While for you guys, the Scudetto, I'm not going to twist this because the Scudetto is almost there. The finish line is, is very close now. We've got everything to lose and I feel like Napoli are probably quite motivated to show Italy this was an incident against Milan. We can, we can be back whenever we want. And I think Juventus might be the perfect opponent for that, for Napoli. I think the weaknesses of Juventus are where the strengths of Napoli lie a lot of the time. So I'm going to say, I think it's going to be 2-0 for Napoli. Okay, interesting. I, yeah, I'm, I'm going a little bit different. I definitely think it's going to be low scoring despite what happened in the previous match. I mean, that can change completely if there's an early goal. That's the thing with these matches that make them so difficult to predict, right? If an early goal just totally opens up the match and then 
I think that plays into Napoli's strengths because then Juve need to push for an equalizer, assuming it's Napoli that scores that goal. I mean, if Juve score an early goal, then we can definitely expect that low block and very sturdy defense. I'm going to go with, I'm thinking a draw. I think it could just as easily be nil-nil or 1-1. And I'm mainly going for that because I think, especially now with Juve getting those points back, at least for the time being, I think a draw would not be a terrible result. So I think Allegri is going to take a very defensive approach and, and focus first and foremost on not conceding and trying to frustrate Napoli's attack and, and maybe try to snatch a late winner or something like that. Or, you know, again, as I said, if if you are able to get a goal, then they're definitely going to protect that. I think Napoli have really slowed down in the last few rounds. And while I completely agree, they're going to be eager to kind of redeem themselves it's kind of the perfect match to play right after such a disappointing defeat to Milan in the Champions League especially Cavada he's going to be fired up to try to redeem himself but I can definitely see this being a a low scoring draw so that is where we'll leave it Yoda thank you so much for joining me today it was a big pleasure and uh, I hope everyone gets to enjoy uh, the game on Sunday yeah thank you you can find Yoda on Twitter at Yura and be sure to check out his pieces, of course, at fortsanapolipress.com. He's an excellent writer, and not just at Fortsanapoli Press. I mean, maybe you can just list off some of the other sites that you write for quickly, Yoda. Get Italian football news, of course, and uh, a couple of Dutch sites, some newspapers and some some websites. And I just basically enjoy it a lot. And uh, it's great what Joe's doing with, with his website to offer some insights in, in English as well about Napoli. So it's a pleasure to contribute to that as well. Perfect. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Pod. I will be back soon to review that match against Juventus, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre. Podcast Network.